Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible. Uh, We love to give Bibles away. So take that with you and enjoy as a gift from Jacobswell Church. There was a newspaper article um, in 1999 in Landover, Maryland. And this is what the article said. 100 years of Christian fellowship, unity, and community outreach ended last Tuesday in an act of congregational discord. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split into multiple factions. The source of dissension is a piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinway piano to the left of the pulpit. Members and friends at Holy Creek Baptist say that the old bench was always a source of hostility. People should have seen this coming. At present, Holy Creek Congregation will, have, will be having four services each Sunday. There has been an agreement mediated by an outside pastor so that each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. Since the head pastor is not speaking to the associate pastors, each will have their own service, which will be attended by factioned members. The services are far enough apart that no group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services to please all sides and avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. You know, when you read an article like this, you wonder, is this really true? Uh, That's was my first response, and I read it to some people yesterday. They said, is that really true? And so I Googled to see if this was actually true, and I couldn't find any source that would say it wasn't true. I saw multiple sources that recorded it. And whether it's true or not, the reality is, is that with humans, all sorts of foolishness is possible. All sorts of ridiculous factions are possible with sinful human beings. Apart from the grace of God, friends, We are just one piano bench away from a divided community at Jacobswell Church. Many of you could share stories about divisiveness in your previous churches or maybe even here at Jacobswell Church and how it has wounded and hurt so many people. Today, we are going to cover a large portion of Scripture, all the way from Romans 14.1 through 15.7. But in this passage, it reminds us, it shows us that opinions have divided the church or have threatened to divide the church even from the very beginning. And I think if we are honest today, we could confess that there are opinions that we have that can seek to divide us from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for our protection, for the sake of the church, for the glory of God, we need to hear this word today. 
Again, it's a longer passage, so we'll break it in parts as we go. But before we do that, let's open in prayer. Gracious God, we know that by nature, our hearts are divisive. By nature, we elevate our opinions as priorities in ways that we shouldn't. That we love our convictions more than we love people often. Forgive us, Lord. Change us, transform us. That we may be unified in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the question that I want to answer today from the scripture is this. How do we keep unity in the church in the midst of a diversity of opinions? How do we keep unity in the church amidst a diversity of opinions? This applies to the church universal, the church in Green Bay, the church at Jacob's Well. How do we keep unity in the church in the midst of a diversity of opinions? And the first thing Paul addresses here is that we need to identify our opinions. Look at verse 1 with me. We'll read through verse 5. Paul starts by saying, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul starts this passage by telling us that we should not quarrel over opinions. By opinions, he is not talking about things that are clearly laid out in Scripture, but in things that maybe we deduce from Scripture or deduce from culture, engaging Scripture. It's our world and life view that we may have different opinions on how we are to live out the Scriptures in our life. Sometimes we call these things secondary issues, but here Paul calls them opinions. What's interesting is if you look at your Bible and it's a different translation than the ESV, there's a good chance that it translates it different. One version translates it doubtful disputations. Another, your thoughts. Another, differences of opinions. Another, disputable matters. The comical irony of this is that evidently there are various opinions and disputed matters on how to translate this word, which means various opinions and disputed matters. But either way, the church of Rome was threatened by the opinions within the church that could divide the church. And these opinions surrounded the Old Testament Jewish laws. Verse 2, Paul says, One person's faith allows him to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. This is not a condemnation of vegetarians by any stretch of the imagination. But rather, Paul knows that there is this divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians on what they are at liberty to eat. You see, in the Old Testament, there were many different types of meats that were unclean, that the Jews couldn't eat for various reasons. One of those reasons was to keep them separate and distinct from the world around them. You see, the dinner table is a very intimate place to be, and God knew that if they were fellowshipping within a course of a meal with those outside 
that they would adapt their gods, which they ended up doing anyways. And so God put these dietary restrictions to keep his people separate from the world around them. But when we get to the New Testament, in Acts chapter 10, I believe it is, God calls Peter to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And as a sign of the kingdom breaking out, not just amongst the Jews, but for the Gentiles, God gives Peter a vision of these unclean animals descending on the sheep. And he says, take and eat. And Peter says, no, I would never eat these unclean animals. And he says, no, take and eat. And so Peter does. And through that, God makes all animals clean to eat. But there were some Jewish Christians in Rome with a sensitive conscience. I mean, think about it. They grew up never eating meat. There were some meats that were okay to eat if they were kosher, but in that society, it was just easier just to be a vegetarian. So their parents didn't eat meat. Their grandparents didn't eat meat. Their great-grandparents didn't eat meat. And this was part of them being faithful to God. And so they had come to faith in Christ. And for generations, their family did not eat meat. And yet now they are free to do so. You can imagine how difficult it would be for them to eat that first pork chop, wouldn't it? And so they have sensitive consciences. And they have not fully thought out the application of the gospel and the freedoms that it provides And so one of the issues here is is eating meat because of the old Jewish dietary laws. The other disputed matter Paul addresses here is that of special days. Verse 5, he says, Some consider one day more sacred than another. Others consider every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. In the Jewish calendar, there there were a lot of special days, holy days, festivals, sacred days, things of that sort. You've probably heard of many of them, like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, Purim, Passover, Feast of Booths, Pentecost. These were all special days in the Jewish calendar. And again, because of a spiritual immaturity, because they were young in their faith, because they have not fully walked out all the implications of the gospel, they thought in order to be faithful to God, they need to celebrate these festivals. And so we see here in the church of Rome, there are these disputed opinions amongst the Christians that could potentially divide them. And the issue for them is that of food and of special days. Now, that may not apply so much here today, but there are plenty of issues that could be disputed here. There are plenty of opinions among us that could potentially divide. For example, there are topics like predestination and free will, Republican or Democrat, household baptism or believer baptism. Speaking in tongues, not speaking in tongues. Immersion baptism, sprinkling baptism. Raising hands in worship, not raising hands in worship. Music volume, length of service, frequency of communion, men's and women's roles in the church. Whether you celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday as it was in creation or on Sunday in recreation when Christ rose from the dead. All of these are topics that could potentially be divisive. All of these topics are piano benches. Piano benches that can divide us from fellowship with one another. Topics that hopefully, Lord willing, we are going to the scripture. And we're going to brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to prayer to discern for ourselves. And so the question is, how do we keep unity in the church amidst diversity of opinions? And we're really going to lay that out the rest of this sermon. But first Paul says this. He says, welcome him. 
that with a different opinion. He calls him the weaker brother, but not to quarrel. Verse three, he says, let not the one who eats despise, that is to be disgusted with or repulsed by the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I want to pause and focus on this word judgment. Do not judge your brother. This is a phrase that is thrown around in our culture, right? You shall not judge. Jesus says, thou shall not judge, lest do thou too be judged, right? And Jesus says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And so this is kind of a mantra for our culture, right? I want to pursue this sinful lifestyle. Who are you to confront me? Do not judge me, right? You shall not judge. Don't you read the Bible? But I don't think that's what Jesus means, and I don't think that's what Paul means when he says we shall not judge one another. After all, Paul is making a judgment here, isn't he? He is saying, listen, you can eat meat. It's okay. And if you don't, you are a weaker brother. Does that sound judgmental? (laughs) A little bit, the way our culture defines being judgmental. You see, when, when Jesus talks about not judging, they're not saying we should not discern whether something is right or wrong according to Scripture. But what they, are saying, what they are saying is that we should not send them away. You see, there is a judgment, a discernment in which we pull people closer to us. But there is also a judgment in which we send people away. Where we break fellowship with them because they don't believe the way that we believe. When scripture tells us to not judge someone, it is saying that you should not condemn them. You should not cast them away and you should not despise them. And you most certainly should not break fellowship with them. Let me give you this example. Let's say you're here and you are a card-carrying member of the tea party. I don't even know if they have card-carrying members, but if they did, maybe you're one of them, right? And you find out that one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is a part of the libertarian party. There would be a, a temptation to avoid that brother and sister in Christ, right? There would be temptation to say, I don't want to go out to dinner with them on Friday night because we're just going to divide over this issue. And so I'm just going to avoid them at all costs. I'll be nice to them on Sundays, but I really don't want to fellowship with them. This is the judgment that Jesus is condemning and that Paul is condemning, that you would separate yourself from others who have a disputable opinion on issues. And I think politics is one that we can all relate to. We live in such a divided country, but the gospel is the great unifier of people from all various opinions. In seminary, I had a Hebrew professor, Hebrew, okay? Hebrew is what the Old Testament was written in. And the Hebrew professor believed that when you translate the Hebrew directly in the story of David and Goliath, that David actually hit Goliath in the knee with a stone, okay? And so he spent like 15 minutes trying to explain to us why he believes that David hit Goliath in the knee and not in the forehead. And then he ended it with this, and he said this frequently in our class. He ended it by saying, but it's not worth starting a new denomination over. And I think what he was communicating was really important, is there are times that it is worth starting a new denomination over something. Even our denomination came in the 70s because they denied the inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth and penal substitutionary atonement, if you know what that is. They denied the core essential essentials of our doctrine. And they sought to reform that church, but they would not. And so they departed. And so there are times to go and start a new denomination. But the majority of time, it's not warranted. It's not worth starting a new denomination over. It's not worth breaking fellowship over. 
Friends, if we want to keep unity in our church, we must identify our opinions so we understand that they are that. They're opinions. They're things that we have deduced from Scripture, seeking to be faithful, but they are not direct biblical commands of Scriptures. And so to keep unity in church, we must identify our opinions. We must also obey our convictions. Paul doesn't say that we should throw away our opinions or that we shouldn't, we shouldn't pay attention to them. Rather, he says we should develop them so that we can obey them. Look in verse 5, halfway through. Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This passage is showing us that it is important to think through secondary issues. Paul is saying you should be convinced in your own mind. You should think through these things. You should figure out what you think is happening when we serve the Lord's Supper. There may be differing opinions, but you need to think through that. You need to process that. You need to study scripture. You need to pray about it. These are important matters, although they are secondary matters. And he teaches us the posture by which we must obey them. He says that we should do them for the glory of God. He says to honor God and in thanksgiving to God. Again, Paul points back to these two major issues in the church, which were special days and special dietary laws. Verse 6, he says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. And I think there's even some application to today in terms of thinking about days and even our diet. Take, for example, Christmas. Christmas is nowhere in the Bible in terms of this is a day that you should celebrate, that you should set apart from every other day. It's not there. As a matter of fact, the first 300 years of the church, Christmas wasn't even really an idea of a special day to be celebrated. And yet most of us here celebrate Christmas as a special day of the year. And we celebrate in many different ways. You know, a lot of times there's family traditions. There's also, you know, gift giving. There's, there's community with our family, things like that, which are all good. But what Paul is warning us of here is that when we celebrate those days, we must do it with a focus on Jesus. He says, in honor of the Lord and giving thanks to God. And so in reference to days, when we have those special days, we must do it in a way that is focused on Jesus. And then in reference to food, we can consider Lent. As you know, there are many in our culture, maybe some of you who don't eat meat on Fridays, some throughout the year, most of them just during Lent. And there is a temptation to do this because it is just simply tradition. You have no cause behind it other than you do it because your mama did it and your grandmama did it. And so you do it too. Or, or you can try to do it in order to, to, to impress other people or to impress God, which are both wrong motives. But if you do it to honor Christ and to give thanks to God for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God, God says this is pleasing to him. And so Paul starts with the command and the posture that we should observe our convictions. We should obey our convictions in a way that honors and gives thanks to God. Paul moves on to explain why we should obey our convictions. Verse 7, he says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, and here's my favorite phrase in this passage, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christian, what an awesome thought that you do not belong to you. That you do not belong to your flesh any longer. That you do not belong to Satan any longer. That you do not belong to sin any longer. But that you belong to Jesus. That you are the Lord's. That you are his bride. That you are owned by him. You are his property. He owns you. You are his. Yesterday I was at our presbytery meeting of of pastors around the state. And I was checking in with one of them. Uh, He had twins of couple months ago, uh, and I said, how are the twins doing? He's like, oh, they're, they're so great, and his face started to line up, and he's like, they're the most adorable little girls ever. They look like little, little Gerber babies. They're just perfect, and I kind of laughed with him about it, and, and I shared the story, which I think I've shared with you before. When, I, when we first had our oldest child, Corbin, uh, Trish was working in public school, and I was and I was studying in seminary, and so I raised Corbin for the first year of his life. He turned out okay, but anyways, and, uh, and so I, I cared for Corbin, and I would take him to the playground, and when we would go to the playground, there would be other kids there and other moms, not really any other dads, and I'd be sitting there looking at my child and thinking, I have the best child here, like the most attractive child, the coolest child, the awesomest child here, and I thought to myself, does everybody else know this? Like, does every, do all the other parents know that my child is the best child, the coolest child, the most wonderful child? Do they all know it? Well, after you do this a couple times, go to the playground and think this, you're like, wait a minute. Are they all thinking the same thing I'm thinking? Like, are they all thinking their child is the greatest child and mine's secondary? And the answer is yes, right? That's what we think. Why? Because they are our child. He is my son. Friends, you are children of the living God. You belong to him. He cherishes you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. You are the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. And because you belong to him, you must obey him to honor him with thanksgiving to him. 1 Corinthians 6 puts it this way. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Do you know what that price is? The precious blood of Jesus. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. James Montgomery Boyce, my favorite commentator, says this. He says, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, whichever it is, we are the Lord's. And he says, do you know any comfort equal to that? I don't. Our sole comfort is that we belong to Jesus. Paul continues, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What Paul is reminding us of here is not only do we belong to the Lord, but so does our brother and sister in Christ belong to the Lord. He is our father. Imagine if I was at that playground and I took someone else's kid and spanked them. That wouldn't go well, would it? Because they're not my child. 
In the same way, your brother and sister in Christ are not yours. They are not your child, but our Heavenly Father owns them. They belong to him, and he will deal with them at the end of time. And so how do we strive for unity in the midst of diversity? We must first identify our opinions and acknowledge that they are just that. They are opinions. Scripture-informed opinions, but yet opinions. And we must obey our convictions, and so must our brother. And we must do it with thanksgiving and honor towards God because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and we belong to him. Finally, Paul says that we must sacrifice our freedoms. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, because God will pass judgment, let us not pass judgment on, the, on, the, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Again, Paul is convinced that these dietary restrictions have been lifted. It's a sign that the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. Yet because some have a sensitive conscience and have not yet worked out all the implications of the gospel, they still obey these rules. And yet Paul says never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And by what you eat, do not destroy. That's such a strong word. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You know, it's funny because in our opinions, I think all of us are fairly convinced that we are the stronger brother, aren't we? And so Paul addresses the stronger brother. Let's just say you are the stronger brother. Paul is saying, sacrifice your freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. In this context, it would be, hey, we're having a potluck at church. Don't bring pork. Don't bring steak. Don't bring meat. Let's just eat vegetables. It's okay. You won't die. Paul is saying, if you flaunt your freedom before your brother, then you are not walking in love. You destroy your brother, and you are making that which is good, the meat which God created, you are making that being regarded as evil because of what you are doing. And then Paul says in verse 17, and I want to focus here for a little bit because I think this is a summary of this entire passage. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the kingdom of God's redemption where he is making all things right and new and good again. And what Paul is saying here is that the characteristics, the primary characteristics of the kingdom of God is not a cheeseburger. It is not bacon. As much as I love bacon, bacon is not the primary characteristic of the kingdom of God. The primary characteristics of the kingdom of God are righteousness 
and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are the things that should characterize you above all else because you are called to bring forth the kingdom of God wherever he puts you. And so I want to focus on these really quick. Three things he says that should characterize the kingdom of God and characterize us as we seek to bring forth the kingdom of God. First, he says righteousness. When Jesus Christ came, he lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life. And it was not boring. It was not awful. It was beautiful to the world around him. And yet Jesus went to the cross full of righteousness and laid it down to take on your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness upon himself for this great exchange in which we would give Christ our unrighteousness and he would give us his full righteousness that we could be seen as righteous before God for all eternity. And so as we pursue righteousness, brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason we pursue righteousness isn't to become someone we're not, but to become someone who we are in Jesus. You have already been declared righteous. So just be you. Live righteous because you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Righteousness should be a characteristic of yours. So should peace, Paul says here. In Romans 5.10, Paul says that all who are apart from Christ are enemies of God. They're at war with God. They have no peace with God. And yet Jesus is a great peace child who takes on the wrath of God that we deserve, that we can have peace with our maker with the creator of the universe. And because we have peace with him, we must extend peace to one another. And then finally, he says, characteristic of the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, joyless Christianity is a contradiction of terms. If your Christianity is joyless, it's because you are not a Christian. If your Christianity is joyless, it is because you are not a Christian. I know this because that was me for the first 18 years of my life. I went to church because I was supposed to, because I had to. It was the most boring thing in the world. I wanted to be anywhere else but in church, but I went because I was supposed to, because I had to. But it was absolutely joyless. But then I met Jesus. Then I was born again, and God gave me new affections. And so there was joy in singing to Jesus There is joy in reading God's word. There is joy in praying to God. There's even joy in repentance to God because I knew the love of God. There was joy that I had never experienced before because it was given to me by the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. We don't walk around with smiles on our faces all the time, just overwhelmed with joy, but we are called to fight for joy because joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit no matter what your circumstance is in life. Friends, what characterizes your Christianity? What would people around you say characterizes your Christianity? Would they say, oh, well, Joe, you know, he, he doesn't eat this, he doesn't do that, he, he does this differently, he does this differently. Is that what characterizes your Christianity? Or is it characterized by these things? Righteousness, peace, And joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says we should do these in service to Jesus Christ. Paul continues, verse 19. He says, so then, because these are our priorities, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make anyone stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Let me pause there just for a second because I think there's a misunderstanding of how to apply this verse. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. There can be this assumption that our opinions, that our convictions, non-core issues, that we should never talk about them with anybody else. And I don't think what, that's what Paul is saying here because even in this chapter, what is Paul doing? Uh, he's sharing his opinions, right? He's sharing his convictions that you, don't, that you don't need to abstain from meat. But what I think Paul is saying here is that this should not be the focus of your relationship with a brother and sister in Christ. That you have to be wise and discerning when you can share these things with them, when you can challenge them in these things. And it is not initially. Initially, you must focus on Christ and him crucified. Rejoice and celebrate that together. Put no obstacle to that fellowship. He, Paul continues. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's saying the same thing we talked about earlier, that you must obey the convictions that God has given you, and to not do so is sinful. 15.1. We who are strong, who have liberty in the gospel of Jesus Christ, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know, I think what Paul is saying here is so very clear. That in order to love our brother and sister in Christ, we must be willing to sacrifice gospel freedoms for them. We must be careful to take our piano benches and not put them above the cross, but put them below the cross where they rightfully belong. Because if we don't sacrifice our freedoms, Paul says, you put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. You grieve them by what you eat. Destroy the one for whom Christ died and destroy the work of God. I have a friend, we'll call him Joe. I always call him Joe, it's just easy. But um, Joe uh, met a girl when he was uh, a teenager, I think, and they started dating, and in the midst of them dating, she became a Christian. But because of the way she was raised, she believed that drinking alcohol was a sin, even in moderation, even just a little bit. It was sinful to drink alcohol. And so she was convinced that drinking alcohol was a sin. And so Joe agreed when he was married that he would not drink any alcohol, not because he was convicted by it. He had freedom to do so in moderation, obviously. But he decided not to do it because he wanted to love his wife well. He wanted to care for her well. And he knew that if he drank alcohol, which, which we believe we have freedom to do, but that if he did that, that it would be a distraction for his wife from the cross of Christ, that it would stunt her growth, that it would destroy, as Paul says here, her young faith in Christ. Now, a few years later, they had children, and her theology on alcohol changed a bit because of that, but I think, anyways. <laughs> but he was willing for the sake of a sister in Christ, to forsake that which he had every right to do. 
Let me ask you, where might God be asking you to sacrifice your gospel freedoms for the sake of loving your brother and sister in Christ? Where might God be calling you to follow the pattern of Jesus who sacrificed all his freedom, all his authority, all of his power for your sake to save you and to bring you to himself? Let me end with this. A couple weeks ago, uh, I went to a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's called Together for the Gospel, and my family went with me, and we stayed in a hotel about 12, 15 miles outside of, of where the conference was being held. And because we just had one car, getting to the conference and back was a bit tedious at times because either I took the van and they were stranded at the hotel, or Trish would run me in, or the kids would have to drop me off, or Whatever it might be, okay? So it was a little bit difficult arranging that. Well, the first night we got there, uh, I overheard some men in the lobby talking about a youth pastor or something. And I looked and I saw that on their wrists they had these bracelets, which was for entrance, that said, Together for the Gospel. And so I walked over to them and I said, Hey, are you guys going to that conference, Together for the Gospel? And they said, Yeah, we are. And I said, Well, hey, here's my situation. We just have one car. My wife and kids are here. Could you give me a ride to and from the conference? And they're like, Sure, we'd, we'd love to do that. And so they said, meet us back here at 6.30 or whatever it was, and we'll go back to the evening session. And so, so I met him there. We got in the car. And as we started the trip, it became very, very clear that we come from very different convictions about our faith. Um, they're both Baptists. I'm Presbyterian. One was a Calvinist. One was an Arminian. I mean, we all have these very different views, all from different denominations. And yet in the car, what was the topic of their discussion? What did they say to me? How is your ministry? How is your family? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? The focus was not on secondary issues. The focus was on one another. And it was on Jesus. How can we care for each other? How can we love one another? How can we build one another up? Now, if we were friends for a long time, there would probably be a time where we get to talk about those secondary issues, and it would be fun. It would be engaging. I wouldn't touch it if it would disrupt our fellowship, but if we could challenge one another in mutual respect and love, it would be great to do that. But you see, this is the picture of what Christ has, that we would not make secondary issues primary issues. But keep the main thing the main thing. Keep Jesus the main thing. And let that build unity in our church. Paul ends this passage with this beautiful exhortation and benediction. Verse 5, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer. This is God's desire that we would find unity in the midst of diversity, that we with one voice can glorify and celebrate God. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Did you notice this is how our passage began? Our passage began with this exhortation to welcome one another, and it ends with this exhortation to welcome one another. And so here's the challenge. I want you to welcome someone who is not like you. Politically, theology, whatever it might be. Find a time to grab lunch with them, to have them over to your house, whatever it might be. Welcome your brother and sister in Christ and show that the unity of the gospel triumphs all the diversity of our opinions. 
Don't let your piano bench get in the way. Focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. And with one voice, give thanks and glorify God. Let's pray. Lord, again, we come confessing that we get passionate about things that we should not be so passionate about. Things that are important, but things that are not primary. And so, God, help us to arrange the priorities in our life, that you would take first place, and that we would seek to love our brother and sister in Christ, even if they view the world very differently than us. Lord, there is a lot of discernment needed in our engagement with others. Pray that you would help us. Give us grace and patience to love one another well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.